Please give your attention now once again to the reading of God's Word. These are the holy, inspired, and infallible words of our God, and we praise Him for them. And it came to pass that on the next day, when they were come down from the hill, much people met Him. And behold, a man of the company cried out, saying, Master, I beseech thee, look upon my son, for he is mine only son, uh, only child. And lo, a spirit taketh him, and he suddenly crieth out, and it teareth him, that he foameth again, and bruising him, hardly departeth from him. And I besought thy disciples to cast him out, and they could not. And Jesus answering said, O faithless and perverse generation, how long shall I be with you and suffer you? Bring thy son hither. And as he was yet a coming, the devil threw him down and tear him. And Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the child and delivered him again to his father. Amen. May God bless the reading of his word to us. Let us pray. O Lord, our God, we come to the preaching of thy holy word. And we ask for more faith, Lord, that we might receive this preaching not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God preached, and that it may be received as the word of God preached. We pray for your minister who will preach now that you would keep him from error in the pulpit, that the Holy Ghost would fill him with the words to say, that all of his preparation, Father, Uh, would be used by the Holy Spirit. And where that preparation is not what the people need, may you supply with freshness what these people need through the preached word. And Father, we pray for the congregation that they may rejoice to see such a precious and gracious and powerful Savior in the Scripture, that their faith would be renewed in Him. And for those who have never had their faith placed in the Savior, that this would be the day that they would believe in a Christ of such power, as well as compassion. Lord, we pray now that you would let my speech and my preaching be not with the enticing words of man's wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power and fitting for this text, Father, that their faith should not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we have often heard, faith gives us a sight and a sense of an invisible God. By faith, the Bible says that we can love a Jesus that we have never seen, and what a staggering thing that is. By faith, the Bible says that we can endure by seeing Him who is invisible. By faith, the Bible says that we are blessed. Blessed are all they that believe and have not seen. Faith given by the Holy Spirit apprehends the invisible God in Jesus Christ. And this is the glory of the gift of faith. Yet our faith, our sight of Christ, really is never what it ought to be. It has many deficiencies this, uh, in this present age. Right? It falters. It halts at times. It feels strained. It may know, as you know, child of God, the precious promises of God in Jesus Christ, and yet it hesitates to fully and entirely trust in them. It may know the commandments of God, and yet it does not fully desire to obey God. 
Our faith has many deficiencies, and we can mourn, and we can lament that, and we should. But the danger that we often have, uh, especially as Protestants, is that we can find rest in the notion of faith itself. We can say erroneously even that we are saved by faith. Now, there's a sense in which that might be true. However, it is not faith that truly saves us, is it? We are saved. What does the Bible say, boys and girls? We are saved by grace through faith. It is faith's object that we rest in. It is not even our own faith that we rest in. That even the weakest of faiths and the strongest of faiths, they are both saved because faith is just an instrument. And it rests in its object. Those with the weakest faith in the Savior, as well as those with the greatest faith in the Savior, will be fully saved. One with a weak faith is not partially saved. And we praise God for that, that the weakest of faiths is fully saved because it has a strong Savior. But we do, and it is our duty to have a strong faith in the Lord. This is what honors Him, after all. This is what glorifies Him. It expresses that He is one worthy of trust and adoration and all of our affection. And when faith is weak, then we must know what to do when we lament the weakness of our faith. And this text is one of those great texts in the Bible, as well as its parallels uh, in Mark 9 especially, that when faith is weak, one thing it must know, it must run to Jesus for its help and for its strength. And that is going to be what our theme is all about today, which is to understand both faith's weakness and its strength. Its weakness in our flesh, and yet its strength that is found in Christ. Faith's weakness and its strength for our encouragement and edification. And so God willing, we'll consider this under three heads on your bulletin. First is the descent into sin and misery. Second is the Father's cry to Christ. And third is the believer's faith tried. And these come out of the narrative itself. So our first heading, the descent into sin and misery. In verse 37 we read, uh, And it came to pass that on the next day when they were come down from the hill, much people met him, meaning Jesus. So let's remember where we left off in our exposition of Luke as it has been a while. You remember that Peter, John, and James had gone up with the Lord to the Mount of Transfiguration. And they were there with Christ and they saw a preview of Christ's glory to come. They saw Christ unveiled. They were transfixed by the radiant glory of the Savior. And it was a setting that was filled with peace and tranquility, wasn't it? They joyed in the presence of God the Father who appeared uh, made a manifestation in the cloud. And they had a heavenly preview. It was you could rightly say, a mountaintop experience in the disciples' life and faith. But we heard it was only a preview. It was only a preview of things to come. They couldn't stay there. They couldn't linger there because Christ said he had to go to Jerusalem to accomplish his decease, to purchase what the transfiguration portended. And so they came down the mountain, and I think, right, what Luke has here in view is to show you the contrast, right? What did they return to? They re-enter the clamor. They re-enter the trouble 
of a world of sin and misery. It's almost like you see the descent, right? There they are closer to heaven, so to speak. And they come back down into this valley of sin and misery. And the contrast really couldn't be any starker, could it? Uh, between glory to come and present the misery that we face. They come back to a fallen world, right? And what do they find? They find a world of disease and they find a world of demons. They find a world of tears, a world of grief and a father about to lose his child. They return to religious men who want to murder their Lord. They return to a generation that Jesus sums up in this way as faithless and perverse. Really, I think the setting here is meant to contrast the glories to come with what we deal with here today and our need for a Savior presently. It makes you understand then, right, when when Peter said rashly with those words why he said it would be good to stay there with the Lord, having experienced this world of sin and misery. But perhaps the contrast also would make you appreciate our Lord Jesus Christ who willingly came down from heaven, the Son of God, with the glories that He shared with the Father and the love of the Trinity to come down into this world that we have made. This world of sin and misery that is the result of our fall, of our own sin. And it also makes you appreciate all the more, I think, saints, that once we die and enter paradise, we will never return here again. Not to a world of sin and misery. Those of you who believe on Christ for salvation, he will never rip you out of heaven and take you back here. And we praise God for that. For his, and for those of you who are not in the Redeemer, well, this world of sin and misery is really as close to heaven as you will get. That also is the sobering thought if you don't trust in the Lord. Right? A world of death, a world of, of grief and tears and disease and demons. Well, this is as close as you will ever get to heaven unless you turn to the Redeemer. Because as bad as this world is presently, and we lament it, it is nowhere near hell's torments. And while we, the saints, then praise God that this is the closest we will ever get to hell. But doctrinally, then, there's something else as we consider faith, right? On the mountain, they could see things by sight, right? They saw a representation of God. They saw Christ in his glory to come. They saw the glorification of Moses and Elijah, not out of the Holy Scriptures by faith, but there before their very eyes. But coming down to the mountain, down the mountain, they have returned now to a world that requires them to walk by faith. Right? And this is where we see faith as the, um, as, as the substance here of this text all throughout faith, 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 because they have come from a world of sight. Now to a world of faith, faith necessary in the valley of the shadow of death here in our present world. And here, beloved, the Bible calls you to walk by faith and not by sight. Sight will come in glory and faith will go away. Right? Faith and hope, they, they are taken away. We have no need of them. We will walk by sight in heaven. But now is the time for faith. Faith in Jesus Christ. Faith taking hold of the Redeemer and resting in Him for salvation, but not just salvation, for all things. Next, I just want to go through some heads of doctrine here for you. Next, our text deals with the miraculous as Christ and his disciples encounter this demon-possessed boy. And uh, as man is prone to twist the doctrines found here in dangerous, dangerous directions, 
We must remember always what the miracles in the Gospels and in the book of Acts portended. As you have heard a few times here in Luke's Gospel, but we always need a reminder, the miracles were signs to validate Christ and the apostles' ministry, to validate the Gospel that Christ preached. And same for his apostles. Miracles validated their ministry before there was a Bible that was collated and put together by the Holy Spirit. That by the miracles you would know that they were sanctioned by God for the great work of teaching and preaching the gospel. Consider carefully John 3 verse 2 and what Nicodemus said to Jesus. Rabbi, we know that thou art a teacher come from God. Why? Do you remember why Nicodemus knew it? He said, for no man can do these miracles that thou doest except God be with him. You see, Christ's doctrine, his teaching, was validated by God through the miracles that he performed. The same goes for his apostles. Miracles testified that their teaching was of God. Hebrews 2, 3, and 4. How shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed unto us by them that heard him? God also bearing them witness. There's that witness bearing. With what? both with signs and wonders and with diverse miracles and gifts of the Holy Ghost, according to his own will. You see, this is the second witness, isn't it? If John 3, verse 2 is the first witness to what miracles are, then uh, we have in Hebrews 2, verses 3 and 4, a second witness, that they were to bear witness of the doctrine of Christ and his apostles. And today, with uh, the witness of the Scripture before you, and the foundation of the church laid by the apostles and uh, Christ as the chief cornerstone, the Holy Ghost's witness of the miracles in the Bible are what remain for us. That we would know of a truth that Christ is the Son of God come to redeem us. And so we are not to seek out sign gifts for today. Why should we when we have the Bible's testimony? Right? We have Christ and we have Moses and we have Elijah and we have Peter and Paul right here in the word of God, and their miracles too. And as you heard in First Peter, that is a more sure word than what Peter heard on the mountain. The attestation of the miracles in the word of God then show us Christ is our Redeemer. Now, they were also necessary for that time because we are flesh. And we don't, spiritual, we don't discern spiritual realities, right? And we need external confirmation at that time Uh, of what Christ does in the heart of man. For instance, when Christ told the paralytic man, uh, thy sins are forgiven thee. You might ask, is this Jesus mad, right? For instance, if I went around and and told a bunch of people, your sins are forgiven, you would probably think I'm totally crazy, right? You can't see the forgiveness of sins, can you? No. By faith, you have to believe he, Jesus, forgives sins. But on what basis? Does faith rest on that? The confirmatory sign is the basis, right? When that paralytic walked, Jesus said, that ye may know that the Son of Man hath power upon earth to forgive sins. Now listen to that, right? Often we look at the miracle as primary. But what does Jesus say is primary? That you would know that the Son of Man hath power on earth to forgive sins. What does he say? I say unto thee, arise and take up thy couch and go into thine house. Luke 5.24, 
You see, what is primary is the forgiveness of sins. What is confirmatory is the miracles. Yet in the heart of man, we want the miracle and not the greater miracle, which is the forgiveness of sins. And so we have a tendency to reverse these things. And so with the confirmatory miracles recorded in the Bible, attested to by the Holy Ghost, we have no need for signs and wonders today. And you must also remember for your faith, I think this is a great and tremendous help because we don't perceive these things. The, uh, the, the, the miracles Christ performed were never arbitrary, right? He didn't sort of arbitrarily uh, juggle a couple of mountains in the air, did he? Say, look, here I am, Christ, the Son of God. He could have, right? It wouldn't be blasphemous to do that. It would show his power. But these miracles are specifically designed and chosen to communicate the picture of the gospel to us. And for that we rejoice, right? For instance, when Christ takes the paralytic man and causes him to walk, what spiritual significance is there in that? Do you remember Micah 6.8 last week in the evening? This healing shows that Christ alone will help us walk with God. And without him, we cannot walk with God. We are lame and we cannot move. And we cannot follow after him. Why did he give a blind man sight? Because we're all spiritually blind and we cannot see uh, God until he opens our eyes. So that, that with that man, when we are converted, what do we say when we take our first look at Jesus Christ? One thing I know, that whereas I was blind, now I see. Right? All of these miracles communicate something of what the gospel does. Why did he raise Jairus' dead daughter? To show us he raises us to newness of life after we are totally dead, completely dead in our sins and our trespasses. Why did he heal the leper? To show us that he cures us of our sin, the plague of plagues, when his Holy Spirit touches us and he has compassion on us to touch the unclean. So in our text, you could ask then, what does casting a demon out signify? To show us that he has, out of his compassion, freed us from our thraldom to the devil. Right, Ephesians 2.2, wherein in time past you walked according to the course of this world, according to who? The prince of the power of the air. That spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience. So by faith, beloved, you have to see these miracles as teaching you something tangible about what the Lord has done in your own life if you have come to Him. Your faith supplies the spiritual sight necessary to see these miracles as great gospel pictures of the full and total forgiveness you have in Christ, the total reconciliation you have in Him, and how you are freed from the power of sin and Satan forever in Him that you would go to this Jesus to have the cure for sin, that your sin would be mortified, that you would, by faith and hope, know that you will see the beatific vision of God because of Christ, has, and he, he has opened your eyes forever to see God, that all of this is yours because Nicodemus said, God is with Jesus and you know it from the miracles. And so with this foundation laid then, let us consider our second heading, which is the Father's cry to Christ. Verses 38 through 40. And behold, a man of the company cried out, saying, Master, I beseech thee, look upon my son, for he is mine only son. And lo, a spirit taketh him, and he suddenly crieth out, and it teareth him that he foameth again, and bruising him hardly departeth from him. 
And I besought thy disciples to cast him out, and they could not. So come down from the mountain. They encounter a man filled with great sorrow and great grief. He cried out to Jesus, begging him, beseeching him, getting his attention above the crowd, saying, look upon my son, my only child. You know, there is a special species of grief in a parent's heart when it's their only child that is greatly afflicted like this and stricken. I have no doubt to the godly, every child is precious, but an only child seems especially so. You know, to think about being left desolate without the only child God has given you, you know, that is a special kind of grief. You know, and this is why God tested Abraham, didn't he, with his only son. You know, Abraham, the man of faith, passed the trial and the Lord said, Now I know that thou fearest God, seeing thou hast not withheld thy son. Did he just stop there? No, thine only son from me, Genesis twenty-two twelve. And if you've followed along in Luke's gospel, it struck me that Luke seems particularly interested in painting this motif, as it were, uh, of Christ helping those with only one child, right? In fact, every chapter since Luke 7 has had this, there was the widow with the only son in uh, Luke 7. There was Jairus with his only daughter in Luke 8. And now there is this man with his only son, demon-possessed in Luke chapter 9. Surely there is something here communicated of Christ as well, right? The only begotten Son of the Father, right? The, the, these in grief over their only child uh, on the verge of death must show us how precious uh, the Son of God is to the Father in heaven and how greatly we are loved that He gives His only begotten Son and spares Him not for us poor sinners, This is the theme that God does not spare his only son for us, right? God has only one son to give us and he spared him not for us out of his love and pity. So I think if you connect the grief of this father and you understand how grieved this father is in the affliction of his son, we see something of the compassion of the Lord on us by giving us his only son, that which is most precious to him. And so faith must be made strong even on that thought of how compassionate our God is to sinners to give us Christ. But that does lead us now as we turn our thoughts back to earth of the plea of the father of the boy. You know, how heart-wrenching it was for the man to see the torment of his child. Uh, He convalesced, he convulsed rather, and foamed at the mouth, almost like an epileptic. But it was more than a disease. There was a demon in this child of a truth. This is not... The, um, the ancients not knowing how to deal with seizures, right? That would be a liberal way of looking at the text. No, Jesus Christ, Son of God, tells you a demon is in the child. This child is truly demon-possessed. And this demon was seeking to murder the child and in that also seeking to break his father's heart with sorrow, right? Th- this is the malevolent spirit that is in Satan. This is the pleasure the demons have in man's misery. This is the heart of Satan himself. It's not enough to murder the child. No, the demon, in, in slowly bringing this child to this point, wanted to surely, slowly break the father's heart as well. How much, how much joy, if a demon can have such a thing, it must have 
in a father having his heart torn apart by the misery of his child. And how we praise God that what? The Son of God was manifested to destroy the works of the devil. Now, I think it would be best for us to spend the remainder of our time in Mark chapter 9. So if you could turn there in your copy of the scriptures. Mark 9 has the fullest account of this narrative. And Mark captures, uh, you can turn to verse 22. Mark captures the fullness of this event in a way that no other gospel does. And as you find your place there, there's something to note. As Mark does have the most detailed account This disproves the theory of critical scholars that Mark is just a summary of Matthew instead of a a third synoptic witness of Christ's ministry. Mark has matters that the other synoptics do not. And that said, as you're there now, I trust, in Mark 9.22, what does the Father tearfully relay to Christ? He says, oft times it, meaning the demon, hath cast him into the fire and into the waters to destroy him. Now think of the cruelty of this spirit, this demon, casting this boy into fire to burn him to death, casting the lad into water so that he would drown, so that he would no more draw breath. But brethren, as we think on the deeper spiritual pictures here, we always have to remember as we consider the cruelty of the demons and the devil is that they are really in a many ways, in many ways for you. What God has designed them for is to be a picture to you of a personification of sin. And this is what sin would do to you. This is what sin does. It is not something that blesses, but it wants to cast you into fire and water to destroy you. What did uh, God tell Cain? What was the warning? Sin lieth at the door, and unto thee shall be his desire. God has warned you. And when you see a picture of a devil taking a little boy and throwing him into fire to burn him to death, and throwing him into water that he would drown him, you must see that sin is not so enticing at all. Every time you are tempted to play with sin, you need to see that this is the aim of sin, your utter destruction, your death. Those who hand themselves over to sin will find themselves utterly destroyed and in the lake that is called fire. You must be aware of these things. Now, as we think on the Father and you think of a lifetime of this kind of care that He had to give his child. You think of the vigilance that the father had had to have for so many years, right? To watch his boy constantly, to pull him from the brink of death. In Mark 9.21, he says this has been going on for a very, very long time. Jesus asked his father, how long is it ago since this came unto him? And he said, of a child. He was very little. And you can think, as we think on this this man and not just the boy, how trying a trial this must have been for the father, right? Emotionally, physically, spiritually, years and years and years of seeing his child being uh, uh, attempted murder of his child by a demon. And I think if you have a child with kinds of special needs, right, you have felt a bit of his weariness, perhaps a taste of this kind of weariness and grief. 
Uh, It's constant need to be vigilant. This constant need that wears on you of watching this child that seems like he's beyond control. And so for those of you, I think it would be good for you by faith to behold the compassion of the Lord here in this text for such as you. In Mark 9.22, you hear of the man's tearful plea to Christ. But if thou canst do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And when I thought on the man's plea, there were two parts that seemed worthy of a meditation concerning the nature of faith. And the first concerns Christ's power, and the second concerns Christ's compassion. Faith sees, beloved, and your faith must see too, that Christ has both total power and the fullness of compassion. And both are to be considered by you so that your faith would be strong in the Redeemer. First, concerning Christ's power, the poor man cried what? If thou canst do anything. And maybe that's not so clear to you, but what he is conveying is actually a level of doubt that Christ has the power to cast the demon out. The sense of the question is this, if you are able to do something for him, if you have the ability to help him, would you help him? In other words, he's not completely resolved yet that Christ could remove the demon, that Christ had the power to cast the demon out. Now, there's no basis for this doubt, but I think before we are too severe on the man, you need to understand it in context why he might say these things, right? For years on end, the man had undoubtedly sought out rabbis and he had sought out priests and he had prayed. Perhaps he had fasted, but the demons continued, the demon continued for years to wreak havoc on his boy. And there's no improvement and maybe his son just got worse and worse. Then he hears of Christ and his disciples And he hears that these disciples had been preaching the good news and they had been casting out demons. What does he do? He goes to them and they can't help him either. And it seems like avenue after avenue after avenue for years and years on end seemed to be shut. And so in some way that you cannot excuse the man for for questioning Christ's power, certainly you can understand it. If you are able Because even the disciples who are, I thought, able to cast out demons can't seem to take this one out. It seems as if no one could help him. And so in his exasperation, if thou canst do anything. But let me say to this, as maybe you link yourself to this man and maybe years and years and years of pleading with the Lord, the one thing you must never do is doubt the Lord's power. You cannot doubt the Lord's power to help. And this is why if you look at the text, and it is so beautiful the way that it is framed here in Mark 9, Jesus' response is very deft. He turns it on its head. He says, if thou canst believe. Right? He says, I have the power. Do you believe it? Right? Don't question my power. Maybe you need to question your faith. Do you believe I have the power? If thou canst believe, all things are possible to him that believeth. Do you have faith? And so what Christ's omnipotence must do for your faith, child of God, is to settle it. 
Christ's power is meant to be a place that faith rests in him. Such that you can never doubt, right, the the power of the Lord to accomplish what he has promised. Just as Abraham was fully persuaded that what God had promised he was able to perform. And that's where faith must go. And that's what settles faith. And the second thing that faith rests in is Christ's compassion or his goodness. Now I thought, with all the man's years of grievous trials with his boy, it seems like this is the one aspect of the Lord that he never gave up on. And this is what is so glorious about this man's faith. He has faith. It is fickle, maybe. It is feeble. But he still entrusts himself to the goodness of the Lord. He seems to have believed, even with all the difficulties of his life, this one truth. The Lord is gracious and full of compassion. Psalm 145. And so what does the man do? He pleads with the Lord, right out of his own word in a way, have compassion on us and help us. Thou art gracious, O Lord, and full of compassion. Lord, help us. Don't just help my boy, help me. He says, help us. The man himself needs help, right? He's not just thinking about the boy. Both of us need help. And so in all of your trials, right, your faith and mine too, beloved, must never forget the power of God and the compassion of God. The goodness of God, in other words, if you want to frame it that way. And the thing is, the Lord causes us to exercise these aspects of faith in this fallen world. Because without these trials, we would never exercise these aspects of faith to rest in his power and to rest in his goodness. Now, I thought it was very interesting in contrast to this this man you heard earlier in Luke 5, a man who did not doubt the power of Christ, but he actually doubted the compassion of Christ, right? In Luke 5.12, you had that leper. What did he say? Lord, if thou wilt, thou canst make me clean. Here's a man who knows that Christ can cleanse the leper, but his suspicion was, his faith's deficiency was, will you have compassion on me? Will you heal me? What was the man, what was Christ's answer? I will be thou clean. And it's so interesting, right? The man doubts the compassion and the will of the Lord to save. And it is this man, this leper that the Lord reaches out to touch so that there could be no doubt that Christ heals the unclean and is willing to do it. And this is the compassion of the Lord that we must see this will of the Lord to save us and settle us. And so faith, beloved, is called to rest in Christ and who he is, his whole nature. You are to remember Hebrews 11, verse 6, Without faith it is impossible to please him, for he that cometh to God must believe that he is, and that he is the rewarder of them that diligently seek him. And we often misunderstand that text when it says we must believe that he is, right? It's not like we have uh, the calling of the people of God is just to believe that God exists, that uh, we are to be deists. No, when we are told to believe that God is, we are to believe that God is who he says he is. This is what faith believes, that out of the word of God, what God says he is, he is. He is very compassionate. As we have sung in Psalm 136, His mercy endures forever. 
Faith is called to believe these things, that he is and that he is who he says he is in the word of God. So what is faith believed? The faith that is rewarded by God, that Jehovah is the Almighty who is compassionate, that he is holy, that he is wise, that he is powerful, he is just, and he is good, that merciful and gracious is he, that he hath not dealt with us after our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities, that he regards us, his people, with love and in tender mercies. Why does Is this all sort of faith's wishful thinking? Is this just the product of what we would like to believe? No, this is what the word of God itself says of God. And what does faith do? Well, actually, let's ask the prior question. Where does faith come from? Faith comes from hearing and hearing the word of God, right? And so faith is inextricably linked with the word of God. Faith lays hold of Christ for who he truly is and who he is to believers. And so by God's help, we are to pray that our faith would be strengthened to rest in the Christ of the word. A Christ who is powerful, yes, but whose power is exercised in mercy, compassion, and love. You know, even the best of saints will have a faith that will be tried even as this poor man's was. Maybe not in the exact same way, maybe it will be, but maybe not in this exact way. And in that moment, all of you, child of God, children of God, with a faltering faith, must know that this about Jesus too, that not only is he the object of faith, but he is the one who strengthens our faith as well. And that's what I want to consider in our next heading, which is the believer's faith tried. Before we consider the man particularly, maybe just to ask yourself the question, how often has your faith faltered with doubt? Doubt over the Lord's compassion or doubt over the Lord's power? Maybe you have believed that the Lord is compassionate, but like that leper, just not to you. Or maybe you believe that the Lord cannot deal with his enemies as you look at the world, right? And I look at my Facebook feed when I'm on Facebook and you see Christians who seem to lose their mind over the state of things. And it's almost like even though they won't say it, they have lost their faith in what the word of God says that Christ will do. So we may not say it aloud, but often we find that our faith is not what it ought to be. And our faith is not in the one Uh, that says he is and is uh, according to the word of God. And the problem is when we realize that our faith is often deficient, our problem is that we often shrink away from the Lord. Right? When we see that our faith is not what it ought to be, actually, we then do something really quite perverse. and, And it is something our flesh will entice us to do, which is actually to remove ourselves further from the Lord. I don't have such great faith. Maybe I should not move towards the Lord. In fact, he's probably ashamed of me right now. How can I go to God? And you might even say, right, Jesus said, if thou canst believe. And you might say, well, I guess I need more faith before I can come back to Jesus Christ for what I need. My faith is too weak and he won't receive me until I have a stronger uh, faith that is more sure and more settled. But what does our text say is the remedy to a faith that falters? Consider the man's response in Mark 9, verse 24. 
And the, 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 the text here is so beautiful, and I truly believe, beloved, this is one of the great texts of the scriptures given to God's people. The man straight away, you see that? Straight away, the father of the child cried out and said with tears, Lord, I believe, help thou mine unbelief. This text is worthy of a meditation on for the rest of your days, child of God. It truly is. It shows you when you find doubt and you find even a lack of assurance in your faith, what are you to do? Are you to wait some time and see if maybe faith will be strengthened as I do this or that, or maybe I'll go away for a time and see if I'll have a greater faith? No, you are to straight away. The word is straight away cry out to Jesus to help you in your faith. Immediately, Lord, I believe. Help thou mine unbelief. This is actually faith. Faith, when it sees that it's deficient, knows to go to its object, which is Christ. When your faith says it is so weak, right, that whether it is for forgiveness, when your sins seem too evil to forgive, right, and you seem so unclean, and the Bible promises that the blood of Christ cleanseth us from all unrighteousness, and our sins seem so evil to forgive, and Christ says, I am compassionate and merciful to cleanse you. You need to say, Lord, I believe straight away. Help thou mine unbelief. Or whether it is for sanctification, when your sin seems too hard to mortify, I will never be freed of this sin. But Christ has promised his Holy Spirit to mortify the deeds of the flesh in you. You are to cry out, Lord, I believe, help thou mine unbelief. Or when it is for obedience, when obedience seems so difficult, so costly, right? And yet Christ has said, them that honor me, I will honor in turn. And it seems like you will lose it all to obey Christ. You say, Lord, I believe. Help thou mine unbelief. Or when it is for perseverance, when the trial seems so overwhelming and that you will be crushed into powder, yet Christ has promised, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. Those that wait upon him will be filled with the strength of God. He will be with you in the furnace and uphold you by his power. He has said, you need to straightaway cry, Lord, I believe these precious promises. Help thou mine unbelief. And this is the remedy then we find here for faith's deficiencies, which is to go to Christ. And it also teaches you, child of God, that you are to never rest in faith itself. Right? Faith doesn't rest in itself. That would be self-defeating. Faith rests in Christ alone. The rest you find is not in the strength of your faith, but in the strength of your Savior. And that has to always be close to your heart. You and I can never trust in the strength of our faith. We are wavering. We are as children, right? We are sometimes hot for the Lord and sometimes we are cold. Our faith rests in the the one who is steadfast and sure, Jesus Christ, our Lord. You rest in Christ's person, And you rest in Christ's promises in the Bible. The weakest faith, as I've said, and the strongest faith are both saved because they rest in the same mighty Redeemer. Now, I want you to see, and you might say that sounds like a lot of pretty words, Pastor, but you must see that this doctrine is vindicated by Christ himself here, isn't it? When the man comes to Christ with his unbelief mixed with his faith, did Christ push him back and say, man, come back when your faith is stronger? No, 
He does not. Verses 25 through 27, when Jesus saw that the people came running together, he rebuked the foul spirit, saying unto him, Thou dumb and deaf spirit, I charge thee, come out of him and enter no more into him. And the spirit cried and rent him sore and came out of him, and he was as one dead, insomuch that many said, He is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. Jesus didn't say, Come back when your faith is strong enough to be worthy of me. He straight away, the man straight away comes to Jesus and Jesus straight away deals with his unbelief and heals his child. And so Christ in this own text is saying, you don't wait till you believe you have a faith strong enough, but let's be clear, even the greatest of us will never have a faith that is strong enough that the, the Christ is worthy of. We all must come to him with our unbelief mixed with our faith. And uh, for your faith to grow in the attributes of the Lord, you need to see a reinforcement of the compassion and tenderness of the Lord in our text. Not only does he heal the boy and then just walk his way, right? He takes the boy by the hand. All these portraits of the Lord's compassion in the Gospels. He doesn't just heal at a distance, but he wants to be often very close to us, right? right? The man had cried out, have compassion on us. And I'll want to show you this as well, that the Lord shows his compassion on both father and son. If you go back to Luke 9, verse 42, he shows his compassion to the father, right? In the words that say, he delivered him again to his father, right? He doesn't just sort of lift the boy up and sort of pat him on the back and then walk away, right? He very graciously takes him back to his father, And this shows you so much of the Lord's compassion. He he could have just said what? Well, I've done my work here. My work is done. I've got so much more to do. But instead, he takes the time, doesn't he, friends, to show his love and mercy and compassion on those who cried out for compassion. This is the heart of Christ. This is the heart of God, right? He could simply say, well, I showed you my power. Demon is gone. That's enough. It would be enough. But in these other tokens we find the love and compassion of the Lord for those of us who believe. And we have to marvel at him, at the Savior the Lord has given us, one that reflects the heart of God, for he is God in the flesh. Well, in our remaining time, and our time is going away, I want to wrap up a few loose ends, um, because these do teach us the nature of faith, and they're worthy of consideration. And first, and often on the mind of God's people is, why could the disciples not cast out the demon? In Mark 9.18 and Luke 9.40, the father complained about Christ's disciples. And at first glance, this is a bit curious, because in Luke 9, verse 1, right, we had heard this months ago, uh, he called his 12 disciples together and gave them power and authority over all devils and to cure diseases. So they had the power. Right? Why did they not succeed? And in Mark 9, and this is why we're in Mark uh, today, uh, they asked the Lord that very question. Uh, and it's revealing. His answer in verse 29 is, this kind can come forth by nothing but by prayer and fasting. And so what faith does is it not only believes the promises of God, right, but it also exercises the means through which faith operates, Right? Uh, they might have imagined that they, like their master, could simply just say a word and, and the demons can come out. No, Jesus Christ says, you are to exercise your faith 
through these means of prayer and fasting. Right? Even though they had the gift to cast out demons, and Jesus says it's not actually beyond you. Right? He says you are to exercise your faith in the means I have given you. And so what we are to do if we have faith is to exercise ourselves spiritually. Right? Faith actually grabs hold of the ordinances of God all the more when we meet resistance in our labors for Christ. Right? There is a resistance here. The demon will not come out. What do we do? We just sort of throw up our hands and say, well, I don't know what to do. No, you're to be more fervent in the means of grace. You're to be more fervent in prayer. You're to consider fasting as well. Right, Fervent in the word of God, fervent in praise as well. Every means that the Lord has given us to lawfully use. Faith does not give up, but pushes and presses more to Christ in his means of grace. This is a work of faith, especially in prayer, especially in fasting. You think about this, children of God, especially today. What are two of the ordinances that are rarely used? Prayer and fasting. Do we not have a great many things that try us? And what's the one thing we won't try by faith? It's prayer and fasting. I think there's something there. It used to be, even when, uh, uh, I'm thinking about our synod meeting, but uh, you know, it used to be when there are grave matters, even you might think today, something as inconsequential as, let us call an officer in the church, let's call a deacon, let's call an elder, let's call a minister. Uh, congregations used to fast and pray. It wasn't just come to the election. Let us seek the will and mind of God. Now you ask somebody to fast and it's like you're speaking a different language right to them. So Christ says faith must exercise even means that are painful to our flesh. Come to me through these means. And you say in these means, Lord, I believe, help thou mine unbelief. And I think here, right, lest we think that these gifts that were given to them were just to be automatic. Fasting takes time, doesn't it, friends? At least you spend a day in, in fasting. And so that provides a lesson for you, a lesson concerning patience, right? Faith, as Hebrews 11 says, is rewarded when it, what, seeks God? No, that would be incomplete. When it diligently seeks God, when it diligently seeks him. And there is a lesson here that a fruit of the spirit received by faith is long-suffering, And the second observation I think you can make here as our time is short is as you walk by faith in this world is that when you make a motion towards Christ by faith, faith will face discouragements. In Mark 9.26 and Luke 9.42, when the boy was being brought to Christ by faith, what is it that happened? You need to think on this. The demon cried and thrashed all the more. Right, It almost seems discouraging to come to Jesus. You can think of the man holding his son. Right, The more he gets closer to Jesus, the more his son starts to thrash around. And in fact, he gets so bad that the people thought he died. And you must think, what a discouragement this might, might be to the man that the closer I get to Jesus, the more my son seems to suffer. And yet faith perseveres through it. Knowing the promises that Christ, Christ says, if you can believe, I will heal him. I will cast out the demon. And no matter what the demon does, faith draws close to Christ. And so when you come closer to Christ by faith, indwelling sin and the devil, they're going to hate it. And they're going to rear up. You'll say, well, I went to the Lord in more prayer yesterday, and I was all the more discouraged. And everything went wrong that day. 
And you might find yourself more bruised and more wounded by indwelling sin. And you say, well, prayer doesn't work. The means of grace don't work. My faith must be deficient. No, faith is unrelenting and presses on towards Christ, even with tears. Faith perseveres with its sight fixed upon the beloved. This is what it means to walk by faith and not by sight. And the man demonstrates it. Even when my boy seems dead, I will continue to go to Christ. Isn't that what Abraham believed? That even if Isaac were dead, God would fulfill his promise, even resurrecting him if need be. So some more concrete applications for you. In matters of salvation, you have no warrant to doubt Christ can save you. Absolutely none. No matter how gross your sin, he is compassionate on sinners. And he has the power to free you from your bondage to sin and the devil. No matter how enslaving those sins seem to be, you cannot doubt his compassion on the chief of sinners and his power to free the chief of sinners. And the scripture says, for this purpose, the Son of God was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil. You have seen his power in the text, and you have seen his compassion too. He says to you, come unto me, O weary one, and I will give you rest. So go to him. Say, Lord, I believe, help thou mine unbelief. And if you have come to the Savior, you, your faith must see that he has definitively saved you. Faith is not to rest on the truth that those who come to him, he will not cast, I will no wise cast out abstractly. But faith rests that I have come to Jesus and he will in no wise cast me out. If you're fighting for assurance of faith, cry to him, run to him, say, Lord, I believe, help thou mine unbelief. And in matters of sanctification, faith must believe that the will of Christ is your sanctification. If you struggle with certain sins, never stop pleading with the Lord for his mercy to remove them. This man suffered for years with his child until the child was healed. You never give up on the Lord. In trials and afflictions of body and soul, you need to do the same. Some bodily afflictions the Lord does not remove in this life, but you plead with the Lord, if not for the removal of it, but for strength to endure it. He is very compassionate. His grace, he says, right? What, what is the promise he has given you in the Bible, right? That his grace is sufficient. When an apostle pleads three times that his thorn would be removed, he said, the answer of the Lord is my grace is sufficient for thee. And my strength is made perfect in weakness. And you have to say, and this is a hard thing, Lord, I believe. Help thou mine unbelief. And you say, help my unbelief that I may glory in infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Second Corinthians 12. And faith must believe that all trials and all afflictions are temporary. They will be removed. Your prayer will be answered, child of God. Do you fear that your prayer, even if you're afflicted in body, will never be heard? Don't be like the health and wealth people, saying it will always happen in this life. It may well. But you know for sure in the life to come, it will all be gone, and your prayer will be answered. It's a question of timing, not of whether he will do it. There is no disease in heaven. There are no more tears. There are no more pain. The former things, he said, will pass away. And that's his promise to you. 
Your afflictions in this life really are in many ways, right? Like Christ putting his hand under your chin and lifting your eyes heavenward that you would see him and where he is taking you. Now, I think this text has often been as well a very special text for parents of children who suffer. And you have seen at least three times, beloved, in Luke's gospel thus far, the care that Jesus Christ has, right? The compassion he has on us, meaning father, mother, child, all. It's not just that he has compassion on the child. He also has compassion on the parents that suffer as well. The man cried, have compassion on us. And you saw that the Lord does. Will your faith see in your troubles that the Lord cares for both you and your child? Right? If you face trial with your own child believer, you must never miss the Lord's heart towards you in this text, especially if they're overcome by some ailment that seems impossible. It doesn't matter if it's demon possession or seizures or perhaps worst of all, definitely worst of all, unbelief itself or something else. Faith must grab hold of the fact that if your child suffers uncontrollably, Christ has compassion on both you and the child. And he knows what a trial it is that you are under. And it may go on and on for many years as it was for this man and this child, but his compassion is never evaporated. And he will be your help. That help may take many forms. And removal of the malady is sometimes actually not what we need. And he knows that. But maybe what we need is, as Paul said, the strength to endure and our sanctification through the trial. That we would be like Job, knowing that when he comes out of the trial, he will emerge as gold, refined. But your faith must never doubt the power and compassion of the Lord, especially if you're dealing with a child who is backslidden, who seems to be walking away from the Lord. You need to never stop crying out for him or her. Lord, I believe, help thou mine unbelief. Have compassion on us. For you said that the promise is not just for me, but my children as well. So when we began, we had lamented that we had come down the mountaintop and come into the valley of the shadow of death here, a place of sin and misery, which is our present age, really, the age in which we Christians live. Uh, we are alive in right now. But down here, actually, you find remarkable things if your eyes are open to them, don't you? Because in con contrast to our misery and sin, strangely enough, I think, the Lord's glory is accentuated. And it actually shines all the more than it did in some ways on the Mount of Transfiguration. If there was nothing but the mountaintop, right, we wouldn't see the glory of the Lord quite so much. Here in the valley, right, you see how clear it is that we find the Savior's compassion and his power. We see his willingness to free us of our bondage. We see him triumph over his enemies as he did that day over the Pharisees. You know, in so many ways, right, we ask, how is the fall of man to the glory of God? In so many ways, the fall of man into sin and misery accentuates the beauty of the Lord and demonstrates it to us that the Lord who left the glories of heaven to be a suffering servant to save sinners is all the more glorious to us when we know these things. And that's why, as it will be for all of eternity, we will say, uh, worthy is the Lamb. 
Worthy is the Lamb because he has done such wonderful things for us here in our sin and our misery. And this will be the deepest matter of praise in heaven when you say it. And until that day, which will be the day in which faith and hope are gone, leaving only love for the Savior, may you endure walking by faith and not by sight, crying out every day if you must, Lord, I believe, help thou mine unbelief. Amen. Let us arise now to prayer.